Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. It's rare that a book changes the way you see the world around you, but this book has the potential to change the course of history. A book that, when women read it, confirms everything you've ever felt irritated by and tells you that, no, actually, you weren't imagining these inequalities. Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez exposes the erasure of women in a world that's been designed by men, for men, and men alone. In this world, women sit shivering in offices set to male temperatures, they hold phones that are too big for their hands, they struggle to reach the rail on the tube set to a male height. We're not collecting data specific to women, and that means that urban planning, transportation, policy, design, science and manufacturing are overlooking the needs of half the world's population. But discomfort is just one part of the puzzle. This data gap is also putting women's lives at risk. Writer and activist Tracy King ran a successful crowdfunding campaign to send a copy of the book to every MP in the country in the hope that lawmakers will take action against the gender data gap at the heart of this systemic discrimination. Those books have now been delivered to every single MP. My name's Tracy King. I am a writer and producer, and now I am a feminist campaigner. My name is Caroline Criado Perez. I am also a feminist campaigner. My first question for both of you, is there a particular female activist from history or even from the present day who's had a profound effect on you? I mean, obviously Caroline. Uh, um, <laughs> yes. So Caroline was was kind enough to let me interfere a bit when she was campaigning for a statue of a suffragist in Parliament Square. Um, I helped a bit on that, and I learned. I'd not really done any feminist activism before then. I'd done a lot of STEM outreach, a lot of education outreach, um, and a lot of critical thinking outreach, but not really feminist outreach. And so, being a working class person, I'm not used to sort of just taking permission to do stuff. Mm. That's just not the world I live in. I'm used to, you have to ask permission very nicely and they'll say no and you go, oh, of course, yes, sorry. Sorry to bother you. <laughs> off I go. Um, How dare you? <laughs> yeah. And, and so my own activism was woken. My own feminist activism was woken by Caroline, who is just somebody who will, she's just like, no, this is going to happen. There is going to be a woman on a banknote. And if I have to sue the Bank of England to get it, there is going to be a statue of a woman in Parliament Square. And, you know, if, if I have to go and stand on a plinth in Parliament Square for a month myself. <laughs> and be, I'm the make, statue. <laughs> yeah, and make the point. And, that's, and so I just thought, oh, you don't, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Mm. Okay, let's do that. Mm. So obviously I'm going to say Caroline, but also we're very good friends, so I'm very biased. Um, <laughs> but I, I do have, I have a sort of, lent, I actually wrote an answer. Oh, like I love like, that. Like a weird Yay. essay question. Um, <laughs> So uh, as a sort of activist from history, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, she was around in the 1700s. So obviously there's lots of sort of modern caveats to her ideas. Um, we, we have a better understanding of things like class now. But very broadly, she popularized the idea that women are not inferior to men, that the difference is actually in education. 
mm. uh, which is a subject very close to my heart. So in those days, that was like the basic human right to an education. We take that for granted now. Girls and boys go to school equally. But in the 1700s, that was absolutely not the case. Um, and so a thing that I say all the time is it's not empowering if it doesn't get you any actual power. Uh, by which I usually mean structural power or maybe money. Uh, but of course, the root of the actual power, of structural power and money power, is education. Uh, knowledge is power. Which is why men didn't then, and to some degree still do not like when women are educated. A lot of men are really weird about educated women still. Um, and she was one of the first women to say, actually, you know, education is the key uh, to women's emancipation. And she was also one of the first women to try and make a living from writing. Uh, she was also very keen on female friendship and collaboration. She had a best friend whose name was Fanny Blood. Oh, my God. That's actually her name, Fanny Blood. <laughs> oh, my God. They had this sort of feminist fantasy. They wanted to be like roommates in a, like a feminist commune, but they couldn't make it work because in those days to have enough income independently as working class women, you couldn't, you couldn't actually make that work. But I really love that she had this sort of collaborative friendship approach to obviously feminism wasn't invented then but you know to her activism which I I feel quite strongly about too because that mm. you know some of my best friends now are women that I've met through feminism and I just think you know that's that's where your people are um so she wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women during there was the, at the time there was a sort of nature versus nurture debate going on mm. about sensibilities which was all about that um, biologically women were or psychologically women were too emotional to be capable of rational thought um, and science has very thoroughly debunked that idea, but it's still around, weirdly, yeah. uh, from my daily Twitter interactions. Experiencing a resurgence via he who shall not be named. Yes. The big J pity himself. The, lo the lobster man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the work started by Mary Wollstonecraft to say, you know, actually women are perfectly capable of rational thought. It's just that we're not educating women. Mm. That, that work is still very, very relevant today. And, you know, however far we get... Uh, here in the West, it's, you know, a, a major issue, the right of education of girls in the developing world, um, etc. So I think that, you know, her, while some of her ideas are very outdated, her sort of core idea of just educate girls and, and uh, you know, that for me is, I guess that makes her my sort of favourite activist because mm -hmm. that's, I think that's still a thing that we need to do now. Definitely. I mean, I also love Mary Wollstonecraft and she wrote one of my favourite quotations of all time, which is, why are girls to be told that they resemble angels, but to sink them below women? Which I just think is so perfect for summing up the way that we try to make women into these perfect, beautiful, nice uh creations that means they're not actually allowed to be human beings mm. and and elevate you know it seems like we're elevating them and actually we are not allowing them to be human and i just think that that's really important and and sort of the more um i guess high profile i get the more important that line seems to me because i feel the pressure more and more and more to just always be really nice and sweet and never lose my rag and never just have a bad day or anything like that because then everything i say gets dismissed um and that just is not the case for men. You know, they are allowed to be flawed beings and women are not allowed to have flaws. And and I, that makes me furious. Um, so I love Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, but I would say in terms of who I keep coming back to as someone who inspires me um, is actually Millicent Fawcett. Um, and the reason for that is um, I just think that what they did was incredible 
And I mean that in the literal sense. Mm. You know, how could they have imagined that with no structural power whatsoever that they could get the right to vote? That is incredible. Um, and so whenever I feel that I'm trying to fight for something that's too hard, I do think back to this very first fight, you know, the fight that upon which all other fights were predicated, uh, upon which, you know, all other all other battles were won. We wouldn't win any of the, the subsequent battles if we hadn't won that first really important battle. Um, and it must have seemed completely impossible and crazy. And indeed, it was seen like that. Um, and, 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 and Melissa Fawcett spent her whole life fighting for it, her whole life, you know, and I bitch and moan about spending three years writing a book or, you know, uh, two years trying to get a statue, you know, and that felt like a really long time to me. Um, she spent her whole life on this campaign and, and she never gave up, you know, the age of 19. And then she was up in the ladies gallery in 1928 watching the Equal Franchise Act being passed. And I and I just think that that's incredible. And, and also, I suppose it's partly a sort of I wish I could be more like her. Um, and, and, and I do think that kind of um, activism is really important. Yes, I think making a noise is really important, but actually being able to rationally make the argument and make the case is incredibly important. Um, so I really look up to women who do that. I love that. In the book, you talk about the tangible ways women's lives are being placed at risk. Um, so how is this data gap actually harming women? It's harming women in pretty much every way you can think of. Um, the way that I came across it, and I think the way that shocks people the most is in the medical world. So the vast majority of medical data is collected and has been traditionally collected on male bodies. And I say male bodies because it's not just humans, it's also male animals and also male cells, which is where studies start. They start in cells and even cells, female cells are too, you know, unpredictable and crazy uh, to be able to test on. Um, and the result is that women have far less effective treatment, um, far more side effects, and uh, women are more likely to die from all sorts of common diseases like heart disease. Women are more likely to die following a heart attack, um, basically because all of the diagnostic tests, um, the symptoms that we recognize, and the treatment has been designed around men. Uh, and female heart attacks not only um, are often symptomatically different, um, they also are often mechanically different. Um, and so there's just this huge issue of developing treatment for the male body. Um, but then also, you know, there's issues like cars. Um, cars have traditionally been tested using a 50th percentile male as the test dummy. And that means that all of the safety features and things like, you know, the positioning of the seat, the positioning of the pedals, the positioning of the seat belt, which has never even been tested for how to place it against breast tissue. Oh. Um, all of that means that women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash um, than men. And, you know, it's not just in these sort of tangible ways like health and, and product design. It's basically everything from the way we design the economy, the way we design the tax system, the way we, you know, what we choose to invest in in public services, the way we design transport infrastructure. All of this affects women's lives from the way they are able to navigate the world to the way they are able to work for in paid work and their unpaid work and just simply in the way they are able to survive a heart attack god it's going great for us then yeah. 
So yeah, when we talk about a gender data gap, what exactly does this term mean? Basically, it means, you know, as in medicine, the vast majority of all information, all data has been collected on male bodies and typical male lifestyle patterns. So in medicine, it is, you know, just testing drugs and um, researching disease. Um, in the economy, it's collecting uh, data about how men live their lives. So the type of paid work that men do, uh, not counting the unpaid work that women do, um, and not including that in GDP, even though women's unpaid work is a massive contributor to GDP. I mean, for example, in Australia, it's the biggest industry <laughs> if you were to include women's unpaid care work. Um, but the way that we count GDP, it looks like financial services is Australia's biggest industry. Mm. Um, but actually, women's unpaid childcare is first. Then second is women's unpaid housework services. And then third is the financial services sector. Right. Um, and the problem with that is because we don't count it and no country is collecting this, uh, the data on women's unpaid work again in Australia, they were meant to um, do a, uh, a time use survey, which is how we collect women's unpaid care work data in 2013. And they just were like, oh, actually we can't be bothered to do it. So they just didn't do it. So, you know, in Australia, for example, the most recent data is from 2006. Wow. Um, and I, you know, have no idea when the latest data from the UK is. We've probably never done one. Um, probably. But I mean, if you want to sort of think about how this might impact on women in a tangible way, um, you look at the UK and the way we have been implementing austerity policies. So the research done on that shows that 86% of cuts uh, fell on women. And that is because the public services that the government chose to cut and the tax changes that they chose to make um, benefited, and I, the, this is kind of amazing, it benefited rich men at the expense of poor women. And specifically, like the, the women that were worst hit were single mothers and women from BME communities um, because they're, they tend to be the poorest mm -hmm. um, and also the most in need of, of public services. Um, now, when you look at something like that, which is so clearly massively biased towards men and deeply inequitable for a government that is meant to be supporting the whole of society, you know, you ask yourself, is this because they hate women? Or is it because they design these policies without using evidence and data? And as an optimist, mm -hmm. I like to think that they don't hate women. It's just that they didn't have the data. And as with so many policies that get created by men for men based on, well, this is the way we've always done stuff. And this probably doesn't matter very much because I would never use that service. Um, you know, they end up cutting these things. Um, another very good example that I like is the snow clearing in Sweden example. Um, so this town in Sweden called Karlskoga um, was doing a gender audit of all its local government policies. Isn't that amazing? That is good. <laughs> Imagine Sweden if is we so did good. that. They're so great. <laughs> they were just doing a gender audit. And um, they looked at the snow clearing schedule. And despite you know what you might think, which is how could snow clearing have anything to do with gender? Um, they discovered actually it has a hell of a lot to do with gender because it turns out that women and men tend to travel in different ways. And the way they were clearing the snow benefited male travel at the expense of female travel. So what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, men are more likely to drive 
and they tend to have a much more simple travel pattern than women. They tend to just do a commute in and out of work twice a day. Mm. Women, because again of women's unpaid care work responsibilities, you may be starting to notice a theme developing here, <laughs> um, have much more complicated travel patterns and it's called trip chaining. And women are far more likely to trip chain than men because they do things like dropping the kids off at school before they go to work, picking up the groceries on the way home, maybe dropping in on an elderly relative. Um, and so they have much more complicated travel patterns, which are not just on a major road. They tend to be in local roads, going through suburbs, um, and they're much more likely to use public transport, um, partly because women uh, tend to have less money than men, uh, but also because even households that have a car, men tend to dominate access to them, even in Sweden. So they had been clearing the snow on the major roads first, and then the local roads and pavements second. Um, and again, you know, this was not because the planners who originally devised the schedule hated women and wanted to disadvantage them. It's because they were men and they thought, well, everyone needs to travel on the roads. So we should definitely clear the major roads first mm -hmm. um, until they looked at the data and realized, oh, hang on, not everyone travels this way. Maybe we should do it the other way around because, come on, it's probably easier to drive a car through three inches of snow than it is to walk or to push a buggy. Mm. What they didn't expect was that it would have an impact on the healthcare bill, which went down dramatically after ch just this tiny little shift. Um, and that was because, yes, it is easier to drive a car through three inches of snow. And actually 79% of those who were admitted to A&E as a result of falling during icy conditions were pedestrians. And the majority of the pedestrians were women. And women had the worst um, injuries, the most serious injuries. Um, and the data of the cost uh, to the health budget versus the cost of winter road maintenance was also huge. So it was three times the cost of winter road maintenance. So it's a massive saving to yeah. be made just from this tiny little shift of, and just basically shows, I suppose, that closing the gender data gap saves you money. Definitely. As well as just being a better thing to do. It's so in, it, it's we, in everyone's interest. It absolutely is. And, and, and at the moment, in all sorts of areas, we're basically allocating resources in this blind fashion that we're not taking into account what the needs of half the population are um and and it's just foolish on so many levels yes it's inequitable but also it's just stupid so tracy when you were reading the book was there a moment where you were like yeah okay i need the government to do something about this yes i mean i think what caroline's just said it really highlights the problem which is that this stuff actually can be a matter of policy and if our policies are not informed by data and not informed by even just thinking about women then the knock-on effect affects absolutely everybody in society so um i was fortunate enough to read a, a sort of early manuscript of the book caroline had sent to me and um and i i think i'd started thinking then this is going to be huge it's going to be important um what what can i do to help you know what can i do to to you know i'm a big data nerd so i, I get the idea but i also recognize that a lot of people you know they aren't going to necessarily read a book mm. um some people are weirdly resistant to that <laughs> uh and some of those people might be in positions of power so what can i do to put enough sort of pressure on the people in power who make the policies to, you know, at the very least, you can't force somebody to read a book, but, you know, you can get press attention and you can make fuss on Twitter and you can get their constituents to say, have you read this book yet? And the first step is making sure that they definitely absolutely have a copy. Uh, so I went to GoFundMe and I said I would like to raise enough money to send 
a copy of Caroline's book to every MP. Uh, and so we went ahead with the crowdfunding campaign and the first question I got was, why can't MPs buy their own book? Which would be a reasonable question if that was the point of the exercise. But the point of the exercise is to say to them, look, this exists and it's a problem. And the data is all in the book, the evidence is all in the book, but also the campaign is a sort of totem for what the solution is, which is you need to just listen to women. So Caroline, you spent three years researching and writing this book. Mm. Where did the original idea come from? And like, what was, did you have this aha moment that made you just sit up and think, oh my God, I need to write this book immediately? So it was discovering the medical health data. It was specifically discovering the heart attacks um, information. So the idea that, well, first of all, discovering that the heart attack symptoms I had always been taught, and I think most of us are taught, and certainly public health information suggests, are just gender neutral heart attack symptoms, pain mm. in the chest and down the left arm. Um, and then reading that women tend to experience breathlessness, nausea, fatigue, what feels like indigestion. Um, but because public health information is so biased and skewed towards male heart attacks, and by the way, you know, heart disease is the number one killer of women in the US and the second most common killer of women in the UK. So, you know, this is a really big deal. We need to know about uh, this. We do need to know about this. Um, uh, women don't realize they're having a heart attack. And so they don't go to the doctor. But second, and this was what really shocked me, was that doctors are not recognizing the symptoms because we are not training them properly, basically. Mm. Um, and I read this in 2014 when I was researching my first book and I just was absolutely blown away because, you know, I, I'm i a feminist activist, I'm a feminist writer. I knew about, or, you know, I thought I knew about sexism. I thought I knew about the way women are made invisible. And certainly I did know about the way women are made invisible in the media and culture. Um, but the idea that this would extend to science and not only to science, but to medical science, which is literally studying bodies mm. and they are only studying the male body. It just blew my mind. Um, and I suppose because of the way that I came into feminism was basically recognizing male default in my own head. So um, I wasn't at all a feminist growing up. Um, you know, I grew up in the 90s. Feminism was very, very much a dirty word. And we were all like... One of the lads, get our tits out for the lads, you know, all that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, you're all, you're doing that, but oh, you know you were both we doing it. definitely did. <laughs> I was not um, doing that. You know, I, I was definitely uh, the Gillian Flynn cool mm. girl. Um, and uh, anyway, I went to university as a mature student and I had to read this book by a brilliant linguist called Debbie Cameron called Feminism and Linguistic Theory, which may not sound like a cracking read, but it really is. Um, and basically it turned me into a feminist, specifically this particular section where she talks about the use of the generic male in language. So he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. And I think that's one of those things that has sort of got through to the mainstream because it sounds so ridiculous. Why would feminists care about that? God, it's so stupid. You know, if they've got nothing better to worry about, mm. everyone knows it means he or she. And that's certainly the position that I took until reading this book, which pointed out that when women hear these words, they picture a man. And that, that, that line changed my life because for the first time I realized that I was picturing a man when I heard these words. Mm. And then I just thought, how have I never noticed this? I am always picturing men when I don't know the sex of the person we're talking about. And I'm 25, 26, and somehow I've never noticed that I'm always picturing the opposite sex. And that was so shocking to me. And so I think that, you know, that's the reason I always 
get hung up on women being made invisible because they had been made invisible in my own head. Um, and so I, I recognized the power of that. But then to realize that it was, as I said, you know, happening in this field that we think of as objective and neutral and fact-based mm. was incredibly shocking. And, and, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And once I couldn't stop thinking about it, I started to see it everywhere. When I spoke to you in March, you said, and this actually stuck with me for a, a long time, but you said, we have unconsciously just presented the world as male. Um, and that because of this data gap, people responsible for building the world that surrounds us, are, they're just looking through this prism of the male default. Mm -hmm. What does that tell us about the way women are viewed in society? Well, women are viewed as atypical. Mm. We're a niche minority, you know, and it goes all the way back to Aristotle, who infamously said, <laughs> the first departure from type is indeed that the male should become female. And he talked about women as mutilated men. Um, nice. and, and this, you know, continued all the way through for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, you still have in the Renaissance anatomical drawings where you know, female bodies are labeled as the female version of a male thing. So mm. the uterus was, I think, the female scrotum <sighs> and and ovaries are the female uh, testes, mm. you know. Um, and, and they are up inside the body rather than dropped down mm. as they are in normal standard humans uh, because women lack vital heat. Oh. You know, that's the idea. We, we just, we're missing something. There's something wrong with us. Um, and, and this sort of carries on through, again, like in the 20th century even. You've got Le Courboisier, this really influential Swiss architect who um, came up with this idea of the human scale, which was the idea that you should build buildings to uh, serve people, which is, you know, great revolutionary, mm. radical idea. The only issue is that for him, human meant a six-foot police, male police detective. <laughs> I, British, sorry. British police detective. Okay. It's very, it's very specific. specific. You know, yeah, that, that is... Yeah, the ultimate human the endeavor. Ult exactly. Yeah. It's very, very odd. And they belatedly considered the female body to, to create modular woman. So that's modular man. They were mm -hmm. going to create modular woman. But uh, the female body is um, too unharmonious. Oh. So can't possibly design <laughs> buildings around this unharmonious body. I mean, certainly for me as well, one of the most enormous changes of mindset that I had after reading Invisible Women was how much I'd internalized exactly mm. that, that I had actually been thinking of myself as an addition or a version of the superior male without ever thinking of myself as inferior. I had yet still said things like, I have small hands. I've always said it, I have small hands. Mm. And then I read Invisible Women and I realized... I don't have small hands. I have average hands for a woman. Mm -hmm. But I've been thinking of myself in comparison to the default male. Mm. Why have I been doing that? And then as soon as I realized that, I realized I've done it with everything. I've always called myself short. I'm not short. I've got I'm average height. Mm -hmm. I just meant compared to a man. Why am I constantly comparing myself to a man? And as soon as I realized that, first I was incredibly cross with myself <laughs> for having wasted so much time. Mm. And then secondly, I had to really interrogate what that meant for how I had navigated my life and how I considered myself. I'd made myself inferior and I'd made male the default. And that's probably affected just about every aspect of my life. And so if, on an individual level, even before we get to designing a kitchen and whether or not I can reach the top cupboards, it's about our attitudes towards ourselves. Mm. And I hadn't sort of fully realised that 
I'm not in comparison to a man. I am in comparison to me or at the very least the entire population of women. Uh, I'm not small. And I'd made myself smaller than I needed to be. What a daft thing to do. So you went to Parliament to hand deliver books to the MPs, 650 of them. And how did they respond? Um, I knew that all 650 wouldn't turn up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had um, about 75 on the day, which is a lot mm. um, for that kind of thing, particularly as it was a, it was a busy day. Um, and... The majority of those who came were just super excited. They were really thrilled and they understood what I was doing. Um, and, you know, it, quite a few of them said, I've already bought the book, but I will pass on this copy to, you know, a constituent mm. or a parliamentary assistant or someone else. Um, and there were some conversations there with a couple of people who they hadn't thought about the gender data gap at all. Mm. And they hadn't thought about the fact that there's no a sort of gender impact analysis on a lot of policies or you know there's no requirement to consider women when you're applying for government funding for various things that will affect women and so we were able to have those conversations you know there were a couple of people who said I'm, I'm going to do something about this I mean whether or not they do remains mm. to be seen um, but certainly the talk was talked and I was very pleased with with the response of, of um, the MPs who did turn up um, I think I mean, it it speaks volumes to me, those who didn't come in mm. terms of, mm-hmm. you know, Christopher Chope was never going to turn up to collect Very his book. Very disappointed that <laughs> yes. Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab. Pris- yes. Not surprised uh, by Dominic Raab. Well, <laughs> very, very shocked. I mean, maybe after you know, reading the book, he'd call himself a feminist. None <laughs> of the conservative leader contenders turned up. I was hoping for mm. at least a Rory Stewart or one of yeah, the... Yeah, come ones. on, Rory. Yeah, yeah. Could think you're all woke. Yes. <laughs> Where were um, you? But, you know, I, so it, in terms of those people, I will be delivering the book to their constituency office mm. uh, with a note. Mm. Um, Sternly worded. Yes. Um, so the more power that somebody has, the more important it is that they get this book. So I will probably spend more time pointing out some of the things that are relevant to to mm. various people. Um, but in terms of doing the, the parliamentary event itself, it did the job, which is firstly to promote the fact that we've done this to the media and to the general public. Mm-hmm. So people can see, now we are actually talking to the people in power who are responsible for making the decisions that will fix a lot of this stuff. So one of the things that one of the sections in the book is about politics. Mm. Um, it's about public policy, and yes, it's about data, but it's also about representation. And and you know, perspective is also a form of data. Experience is a form of data, and and women bring different experiences to public office. Working class women from Birmingham bring different experiences to public office than middle class women who are half Argentine, let's just say. Just to pluck an example out of nowhere. Just, yeah. <laughs> Not mentioning any names. No, mentioning no names at all. You know, so it is incredibly important. We have this wide range of 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 voices and perspectives and people. Um and that is absolutely a sex and gender issue. You know, it should be fifty fifty in Parliament. But it's also a class issue and it's also an ethnicity issue, you know, and it's also a disability issue. Like I um I was in Glasgow giving a talk and there was a woman who spoke after me who is uh, a uh she's got um MS and has to use a walking stick and you know, was talking about these things that I'd never considered, like, for example, the disabled room 
in um, in hotels is often absolutely useless for her. In fact, the worst room she could use because it's designed for people in a wheelchair. Mm. And so everything's too low for her. Um, and and things like as well, she said a really common problem is, again, toilets. I've, I've become head of the, what was it you called me? The head of feminism's toilet division. Um, <laughs> but there, there also is a head of, of disabilities toilet division because you know those cords that hang down? Yes. Um, she said people often wind them up because I guess they're like, oh, it shouldn't be on the floor. That's disgusting. Mm. But they have to reach down to the floor because the whole point is if a disabled person falls over, they can reach the cord. And so people think that they're being helpful and cleanly. And actually, they're just making this thing completely useless for a disabled person who really needs it. Um, and I never heard of either of those things. And neither of those things would occur to me as someone developing public policy. But she knows about it because mm. she's experienced it. And with the best will in the world, you know, a white middle-class man called Christopher from Surrey doesn't know what it's like for all the other people with different experiences. How can he possibly design public policy for them? Mm. He just can't. He can design public policy that is great for white middle-class men called Christopher from Surrey. And he can inform himself to a certain extent, but there'll be things he just won't have thought of. You know, like I love that story um, from Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, where she talks about how she got pregnancy parking put in at Google. Mm -hmm. And she realized because she got pregnant and she was really struggling to walk across the car park. And because she was in a position of leadership, she could go to the head of Google and say, put in pregnancy parking. Mm -hmm. And he said, of course, I'd never thought of it before. And why would he have? He's never been pregnant. No. I don't think we can make Christopher from Surrey care is the issue. But there are plenty of people in positions of power in Parliament uh, who, who care. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those are the ones that will take invisible women and we'll do something about it. I also think that, I mean, I, there were a couple of MPs that I spoke to, male MPs, who uh, I think don't understand the issues. And even when they read the book, it will still be very much an academic thing mm. for them. Mm. But they will understand that the world that they live in, they have to do something about this, whether or not it's because it's vote winning or because it looks good, you know, in the wearing and this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt kind of, you know, cool credentials. Um, but I do think, you know, that that impetus c comes from all sorts of people. It doesn't, you know, it, I don't have to run for office to make a difference. But what I can do is do a GoFundMe to get a copy of this book that you've then written. You're not going to run for office either. Uh, we can't all run for office. <laughs> uh, what we can do is knock on the offices. And I, so I read that the book's already inspired the Scottish government to set up a working group on data and statistics. Yes. So in an ideal world, what do you hope that MPs will do? Firstly, I mean, there are a couple of really big things for me. Um, I mean, awareness is a very general, sort of slightly subjective, non-measurable non thing, but, you know, awareness is a good goal to have. Um, the funding for things like scientific research, if it's for medicine that's going to be used on women, or if it's for anything that is going to be used on or um, used by women, um, that research, I think, as a condition of any kind of public funding should have some sort of sex disaggregated data provision or you know consider i mean a, a, an easy example is is this just going to be tested on male mice mm -hmm. because if so then 
you're not getting your funding. Yeah. So I would like to get to that. Like that's a big tangible thing that can be done. And some EU funding does already, not all, but some EU scientific funding does already have that provision. So I would like to see actual action there because I think that would make a very Mm. tangible difference to women's lives. Um, The very boring stuff like road design and transport infrastructure and public Mm. transport. What do you mean boring? Like for me, (laughs) that's not sexy stuff for me. I like, you know, I like science. I don't like road planning. Um, (laughs) Outrageous. I know, but... uh, Getting sassed by my However, (laughs) but as you've already indicated with the travel pattern stuff and the trip Mm. training, actually, that's a massive, important feminist issue. So, you know, if if our Department for Transport actually said, we have to do a gender impact assessment for every single thing that we do Mm. now. And in fact, you know, every policy, every new law, every law that is revised, everything that the government does they should first ask the question, how will this impact women? We don't know because we don't have the data. Okay, let's get the data first. Mm. Uh, oh and if we did God, that, so I mean, that would we'd be like Sweden in a matter of, in a matter of months. <laughs> <laughs> it would just, I mean, just, some, it just be so incredible. Because the thing is, even when they do do what they call gender impact assessments now, they're just such a tick box exercise and they're not really looking at it properly. And it would just be so amazing if they actually started to properly do it and collect the data. Mm. And, and you know, I'm talking about this like it's this amazing, you know, Nirvana idea, but it should just be basic. You know, we're half the population. Why should we have to fight for this? It's ridiculous that we have to fight for this, but we do have to fight for it. But that's what, as soon as you pointed out, the first thing people do is deny it. Well, surely mm. not. That can't be the status quo. What, we just don't test medicine on women. And then when you show them the proof, which is why it's really important to have a book you can mm. smack them around the head with, uh, you show them the proof, then they're like, oh, well, well, then we have to fix it. And actually, it doesn't take a, it doesn't take that many people in a position of power to fix something I have discovered, um, which mm. is why, you know, which is, I think that's why you have to go to the top. Yeah. You know, as unsexy as it is to say, I want money to buy a book for people who mm. already have money, um, the wider point that's being made, actually, that's the fastest way into affecting affecting real change i mean it's that or some sort of guerrilla activity that we do like the suffragettes did and yeah. you know we're not we're kind of not really in those days anymore so i think actually the way that you get stuff done now is you go and knock on some doors in parliament and say do this so tracy when i chatted to you in march um at the start of the crowdfunding campaign you said to me we knew we were second class citizens but we couldn't prove it before um and do you think that this explains why the books resonated so deeply with women like it just kind of confirms that everything we've been feeling for a long time uh that maybe things we weren't even like aware of like it just kind of is like oh that's why yes and uh i mean that was one of the big revelations for me was that uh, I I had sort of low level just known through little interactions, you know, seemingly trivial things like I was getting wrist pain from mm. my big smartphone um, or, you know, I'm a gamer and I, I, I get wrist pain when I'm playing my Nintendo Switch, which is a handheld console. I, I sit up in bed and I play it, which is very healthy behavior. <laughs> um, and I was starting to get wrist pain from that. Mm. And uh, it wasn't until... Uh, Caroline's book came along that I realised and and I looked into it specifically on the gaming side of things that actually this stuff is just designed around um, average male hand span and women have a a smaller average um, hand span than men we have um, on average lower grip strength um, shorter forearms etc all these things that actually my phone is too big and heavy 
for my hand. And I've got around that by putting, a, I've got like a sticky holder thing on the back mm. so I can just hold it uh, without it actually um, causing pressure on my hand. But, um, you know, Apple haven't, They've, they've, you know, if they brought out a pink iPhone, you know, for women, obviously we'd all be up in arms because it's unnecessary. But what they, what they didn't do was when they started to make their screens bigger, they didn't think can, you know, half of the population actually comfortably hold this, or if they did think that they didn't care. But you know, in the, so I spoke to um, Microsoft about the way that their the Xbox controller is designed, and and they they hadn't considered women's hands they considered children's hands mm. and they considered men's hands and and they pretty much just consider you know the people in the office but they hadn't considered women as a discrete group even though women are are now the largest uh, the largest gaming group um so it was yeah it was like oh okay all of those little irritants it, that's aside from i might die in a car crash all the little <laughs> irritants why <laughs> are my top thing. kitchen cupboards too high and then if i stand on a stool uh, I might die because if you fall from from the height of a stool, you're more likely to die than if you if you just trip over on the floor. And so, women who are standing on step stools to get to the top cupboards, and they fall off, especially elderly women, they fall off, mm. and then they die or they break a wrist and they're out of action. And, and then and then you start to think about it. And you're like, it's not a little thing. It's not just my phone. It's not just my switch. It's not mm. just my kitchen cupboards. It's everything. It and is. and then you get really mad. And then you stay mad. <laughs> when does the anger go away? So great so, for So, yeah, health. I've labelled the women who've read the book my monstrous regiment of furious women. <laughs> which And I, I've, I love them. And they're really getting into it. Oh, you I know, my, my mentions are just... I mean, my mentions are basically unmanageable now because it's just full of women spotting all these inequities mm. and telling me about them, um, which, which I love, so long as they also tag the people who can actually change it. So yes. I, I was getting lots of people tagging me about toilet cues. And I was really pleased that women were noticing it, but also I'm not actually head of feminism's toilet division. And so I can't <laughs> magically fix all the toilets. Um, so I've started telling people to tag, you know, the train station or the venue, whatever it is. And they have. That's really um, good. And, and they so, are getting responses. Them, yeah, I think, was it King's Cross? changed their toilet provision paddington 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 yeah. that was my oh, good my angry tweet um and uh yeah so basically they for months had closed one of the women's toilets so men had two and women had one and so every time you went to paddington there was this queue out of you know not just out of the toilet out onto the concourse out of the lobby of the toilets all the way around um because there weren't enough for women and there was no cue to be seen for men because they had far more than they needed. Um, so they reassigned some of the men's to women's. Now the now women don't have to queue for as long. Um, for those of the listeners who are wondering what on earth is that about toilets and couldn't women just hurry up? Uh, I don't have time to, I, I imagine I don't have time to explain the whole toilet issue, but buy the book and find out. And it's not about women taking too long. It is about structural sexism. Yeah, and which is a thing that I've seen people saying that in your mentions, I think. Yeah, why can't women just hurry up? Right. You know, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that what we're doing. Time. We're just lingering in this gross public toilet just for laughs. You there, know? Was, um, our nose and <laughs> there was our really, There was a really funny tweet from someone, I can't remember the name, but they uh, somebody had, a man had said, you know, well, women take ages gossiping in the toilet and doing their makeup. And a woman replied, yes, and, and men are just having fights and talking about football in their toilets. <laughs> you know, to highlight the absurdity of, of course, that's not what we're doing. We're very conscious there's a queue. We're going as fast as we can mm. we just have different needs and fewer toilets actually yes. we have less provision and also more need so we've got sort of about a quarter of the toilets that we need 
So that's why there's a queue. Nothing to do with makeup. Because we're not queuing for the mirrors anyway. We're queuing for the cubicles and no one's doing their makeup in a stinky cubicle. No. It's actually (laughs) disgusting. (laughs) And you just want to get out of there. And, And you're right. Like we do. When there's a queue, women are rushing. You know, they come out of the cubicle not having done up their trousers properly yet because they are aware that, and, and of course, because the way women are socialized, we are socialized to be pro-social. So, of course, we're not taking ages in there. The book's had an enormous response online. Obviously, we've talked about scores of women who are like, yes, finally. But also, I think you've had a lot of like mansplaining too. Uh, a lot of people who don't want to believe that this is a thing. Yeah. So, I mean... It's been a mixed bag from men. I, actually, I would say the, the majority has been really positive mm-hmm. and that's been fantastic. Um, most men, I would say, have responded to reading the book by saying, this is how I'm going to fix things, um, which is brilliant. And they give me examples of how they're going to fix it. Um, but there are men, and, and I think that there are basically men who haven't had read the book because I don't actually believe anyone uh, could read the book in good faith and come away thinking, oh, this is fine. There's no problem here, you know, because even if you don't care about women at large, you care about your mum. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want her to be in a car that she's 17% more likely to die in than you are or for her to die from a heart attack. And in fact, I've had lots of people getting in touch, really sad stories about um, their mothers or friends dying from from heart attacks. Um, and that includes, you know, a guy, it was his mother had died from a heart attack precisely because her symptoms hadn't been recognized. Um, but yes, there has been a fair amount of mansplaining going on. One of them is pee quicker. Um, some of them is just sort of outright, you know, stop whining, which is just incredible, really. You know, we're talking about women dying. No, I'm actually going to carry on whining about that, if yeah. you don't mind. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's fair enough, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> if the government came to you and said, help, tell us what to do. Collect sex disaggregated data. Yeah, that's that is absolutely that's it. the best. It's just a one-line answer, really. Collect sex disaggregated data and then use it. Think about women sometimes. Stop forgetting women. Yeah. Well, okay, but I mean women are fifty percent of our population, so think about women fifty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a simple answer and a really complicated answer. Yes, think you know, collect sex disaggregated data as a very first thing. Mm-hmm. Secondly, inform all policy, funding, um, law, etc., based on the needs of 50% of the population. Um, and uh, like, I think if you're a woman in power, um, then it, it, it's a different question for you because mm. you have probably navigated some extraordinary male defaults mm. structurally to get to be a woman in power. Um, and oftentimes you find that, and less so now, but historically some women in power don't like to stick their neck out over feminism because mm. actually they have gone through so much to get where they are. Um, mm. And it's such an easy thing to knock women off their perch with. Mm. She's a feminist. She's always going on about that. We can dismiss her. But for men in power, which is the majority of people in power, um, I mean, my message would be read the book first. Yeah. <laughs> Just read the book. Collect your copy. I like, yeah. I like that suggestion. Well, and I, actually, I think it becomes obvious from there. Once you've read mm. the book, you, you know what to do. That was wonderful. Thank you both so much. Thank I just you. loved this entire this entire conversation. If you liked this episode of History Becomes Her, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9.
History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christian Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.